Welcome to Book, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Don't you feel like you've done this like three times really quickly back to back already? Yeah, like in the last 27 minutes. <laughs> now for um, you guys, it's been four days. For us, it's been less than half an hour. It's been, yeah, it's been one glass of water for me. So uh, we're happy to bring you part four of four of the Noir the Bar in Indianapolis uh, reading that we recorded this past weekend. Um, you've already listened to a ton of awesome readings. Clayton Lindemuth, James Ward, Kirk, Jedediah Ayers, C.J. Edwards, and the epic, as always, David James Keaton gets his own episode kind of episode. Tonight, we're going to be bringing you two, the two final readers of the evening, Les Edgerton and Scott Phillips. Can I just say before I go on that the absolute highlight of um, our Indianapolis trip was getting to meet Les Edgerton. Oh, man. Yeah. That dude is awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of these guys we've met before or some people we hadn't had any type of contact with, but we reviewed Les Edgerton's The Rapist. Um, definitely one of the standout books we reviewed this year, and it was so cool to uh, to get to meet him. It's such a nice guy. Nice. And, and not just nice, like friendly and funny. Nice. You know, like the kind of guy you could just hang out with for a couple hours. Yeah, absolutely. He's a great guy. It was good to finally meet him. We'd had kind of a relationship back and forth for several months now. So, you know, it was good to spend some time and really get to know him as a person. Yep. And uh, he reads a short story and then he's followed immediately by Scott Phillips. Now, this is this is like like the like the whale, right? Like Scott's voice has been in like an episode and we've talked about him and we met him before, but we've never actually had any Scott Phillips content, like legitimate content on the show. So we've been looking yeah. forward to this for, uh, well, it's the first time we saw him reading Corydon when we were still too wussy to, um, sneak in a recorder and just That's record right. if we weren't going to ask. So when it was still just a dream to record these guys' voices. So yeah, Scott Phillips reading from Rake, which we did review in episode 157 of Booked. It was actually one of our more favored books. Um, And even though we knew that there was a level of autobiographical content to it, we find out a lot more about that because in addition to reading from it, Scott does explain a ton about the process of writing it and kind of interjects throughout the reading some interesting tidbits as well. Now, do you remember when we first said we were going to this reading that I demanded that he read all of Rake? Yeah, we got we got a yeah. compromise. We got some we of got, it. We got yeah yeah we got we got a we got a good portion of it. I'm very happy with what we got. <laughs> so uh, here it is, guys. Wrapping uh, wrapping up. Noir at the bar, Indianapolis. Les Edgerton and Scott Phillips. Uh, I think we're gonna do a couple drawings here because we have uh, we have more drawings than we have readers. So hang on a second. All right, we've got uh, six seven two. This is actually the booked anthology from the, the guys at Booked. They put together an anthology and they turned me down on a story. But actually, the, that story actually wasn't ready, so it's a good thing you turned it down because uh, actually, when it was ready, it got published by Needle, and that's actually what got the attention of a of an agent that I'm now working with. So, You're welcome. thank you. <laughs> All right, we've got uh, eight seven nine, eight seven nine. All right. All right. I don't know if I've got the energy to continue. Uh, our next reader is going to be Les Les Edgerton. Les is an ex-con. 
Uh, Les has 16 books in print, uh, including The Bitch, which I am reading now. I'm about halfway through, and it is quite good. Uh, the Rapist, which I'm a, I'm a little scared to read. Uh, he has his MFA from Vermont, and he's a pretty cool dude, and I've just met him today, but I've had uh, some conversation with him on uh, Facebook through the past, so uh, give it up for uh, Les Edgerton. He says, uh, why, are those so few, why are there so few singers like you, meaning Janis Joplin, Tina Turner, that type, when all they had at the time were Patti Page and those type? And she says, because I sing under the music, and they sing over the music. And I think that's what noir writers are. We write under the, 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 uh, the language, and most writers write over the language. Does that make sense? No. No? Oh, shut up, Jed. <laughs> anyway, I'm an ex-con, and I have a different view of... How do I do this? I have a different view of a police than uh, some of these guys do. When we drove down here today from Fort Hooterville, Fort Wayne, we passed my alma mater, Pendleton, where I spent a couple of years, and I always get a little twinge when I go by it. Um, and I was attacked by a, a police dog, so I have first-hand experience. The cop told me, he let him go on me, and he laughed. He said it was, he just graduated, and he was the worst graduate they ever had. He didn't obey anybody. So that was fun. <laughs> but anyway, I'm, I'm, I've lived most of my life in New Orleans, except for Fort Wayne and some other places. And I've got a story uh, I, I set in a place I used to go to called the Mockingbird Cafe. And I was in the light then, I was an outlaw then and everything. And it's about a couple of black guys. So, without further ado, the Mockingbird Cafe. Saturday nights, Lucius Tremaine went to the Mockingbird Cafe in New Orleans. He always came by himself and seldom talked to anyone save the bartender, and that just to order another drink. The bartender, Fathima, knew more about him than anyone else who frequented the place, not because of any confidences exchanged, but because of two neatly folded together newspaper clippings from a Michigan paper that had once fallen from Lucia's pocket and were found later by Fathima when he swept up. One clipping was a, re was a report of a shooting and a death and a trial and a jail sentence made it out out. The other about a convict who had escaped from an Ann Arbor hospital after an operation and a massive transfusion for wounds gotten in a dust-up at Jackson Prison. The man had somehow removed catheters and needles from his body and re removed his body from the hospital, walking out sometime after midnight. 
somehow unseen past the guard posted outside. The writer of the second article seemed worried that such a thing could be done, considering the, the deleterious physical state the patient was in. There was a brief human interest mention of the man's family, a wife on welfare, and a daughter on a, a dialysis machine in Detroit. The subject of both articles was a man named Lee Atwater, and there was no photograph, but the bartender had no doubt they were about the man he knew as Lucius. Pathema kept what he read to himself. He knew lots of secrets. He had a few of his own. Lucius favored treat cheap wine and shots of Seagram 7, which were just fine with the bartender since that was a stock and trade. You could tell that by the, the stale air as soon as you stepped inside. If the smell would be enough, if you were a heavy smoker or had sinus trouble, then a glance at the back bar at the six or seven bottles there would let you know this is a loser's kind of establishment and didn't pretend to be anything else. The Mockingbird Cafe wasn't really that anymore. The cafe, that is. At one time, yes, you could get a burger fries and even a malt that had real malting in it and a waitress with piled hide hair whom everybody called Hun and suggested the red beans and rice. It's real good today, but no more. There was another Mockingbird Cafe in New Orleans, not far from this one. That one was famous and was pointed out to tourists and buses by uniformed guides. That one had rows and rows of bottles on the back bar, all different colors with beads of shiny stainless steel shot measures and brisk waitresses and polite college-age bartenders in green forest green shirts with tiny white and black birds on the breast pocket. Tourist buses were careful to avoid the street the other mockingbird was on. Originally, it had, it had been called the sweet shop, and then the founder and owner, Ms. La Pochette, renamed it after her favorite bird on occasion of adding beer and hard alcohol to the fair because when she was hardly, barely a teenage girl, a boy who sat in front of her in algebra class told her one day she reminded him of a cute little old mockingbird. Then Ms. LaFouchette passed away and, the Washington, and Ike Washington had it 15 years. And then there were six other owners in rapid succession within the following decade while it completed its transmogrification into its adult stage, a honky truck. You had to step to your left halfway back to the bathroom to avoid a hunk of ripped linoleum. You didn't know if this rust stain on the wall above the lone urinal was water damage or blood. It could have been a legitimate source of speculation in the Mockingbird Cafe if anyone had cared. Had cared. This was how Lucius Tremaine found it and it seemed to suit him. In the fifth decade of his life, Lucius Tremaine sat always on the same stool on the far end of the bar leaving only one possible seat beside him and making it plain with the pitch of his head and the incline of his spine that he wasn't open to socializing. The regulars, wise to this breed of man, kept their distance, omitting him from conversations about the heat or how the ponies are running out of Jefferson Downs and even the worst of the derelicts bypassing when sponging drinks. Now and again, a Yankee tourist wiping sweat from his brow might stop in by accident astray from the tourist paths and plunk down next to Lucius and such a person might ask him where the best place for a shrimp or girly shows was but Lucius would stare straight ahead and growl in a low don't mess with me voice I look like a fucking cabbie and the tourist would slug down his drink or not and get out leaving a too large tip behind him where he lived or got his money to drink him no one knew 
Athema figured he worked at one of the shipyards over in East New Orleans from a few chance remarks Lucius had made. And what he deducted were burn marks from a welding rod he'd seen in his forearm once. Some of the smaller shops are fairly casual about background checks, especially if the applicant agreed to less than union wages. His clothes were faded and worn but clean, and he fancied a New Orleans Saints baseball-style cap. He didn't smoke, and he kept dollar bills in a wad in a sock inside the left work booth. Whenever he put a new bill on the bar top, Pathema would pick it up gingerly with thumb and forefinger, a delicate move for someone who weighed 350 pounds, and it killed another kid during a high school football game. The crossbody block he threw, which killed the kid, was legend, even beyond the Irish Channel, where Pathema was from. But as mean and respected as Pathema was, he never said a word to Lucius as to the sanitary condition of his currency. He might have thought of doing so at one time, but not after he read those clippings. He just put those bills aside in a separate part of the the cash drawer and gave them back and changed to people he didn't particularly like. Sometimes Lucius would stare back at the group of men shooting pool as if he wanted to go walk back and pick up a cue, but he never did and no one ever asked him to join them. It was of a Saturday night, one of those hot and steamy New Orleans nights and the knives and guns come out a little quicker than usual and Charity Hospital's emergency room looked like a mash unit that two tourists stepped through the doors of the Mockingbird. A man and a woman, she pretty and dressed in something smart, black and expensive. He, small and snarly looking, in black tie and tuxedo, and to both of them, white people. <coughs> they walked the empty length of the bar and picked the two stools next to Lucius. The cacophony of the bar dissolved and the sounds of the last click of the balls at the pool table hung in the air for a long, pregnant second as all movement paused and then started up again at a higher intensity. Be on ginger for me, said the man, and a daiquiri for the lady. He pulled out a bunch of crumpled bills and dropped them on the bar, picking them up one by one and snapping them straight. No blender, Fatima said, his weight shifting back in his heels, and no B.O. And the man didn't get it for a minute and smiled and came with, well then, show us have a jack and ginger and the same for me. He settled for wild turkey and seven up for the both of them, and they had a grin over that, and then they asked Fatima to turn on the TV as a Miss America pageant was about to begin, and there was no way in the world they were going to be able to get back to their hotel in time for it, which is why they had start, stopped at this fine establishment, the man explaining all this in a loud voice. You could see Fatima considering the request, but then he shrugged, and turned and switched on the set and flipped through the channels until he found a crowd of girls in evening gowns. That done, he went down to the other end of the bar and picked up the sports section of the times Picayune. Miss Mississippi, it was the tourist lady. No way, Miss North Carolina, she's a brunette. Mississippi's a blonde. Brunettes always win. No, they don't. There's been plenty of blondes. Besides, Miss Mississippi's much prettier. She's got more talent, too. The man and his companion were having a friendly argument. The woman decided to ask Lucius of the tie-breaking boat. Which one do you like, sir? At first, he didn't realize they were talking to him and he ignored them, but then the woman patted his arm and asked him the question again. Don't matter none to me, he said, not looking at her, both elbows on the dark wood of the bar, eyes fixed on a point in front of him. Oh, come on, sir, which one do you think's the prettiest? 
It was a man leaning around, mouth grinning and eyes shining. Or most talented, the woman, the lady, chipping in. Looks all the same to me. Looked like white folks' business to me. The noise level on the mockingbird lowered several decibels. Even those who hadn't heard him could sense something was about to happen. What? What? Someone said back by the pool table. It's Lucius, man, someone else said. He's talking to them white folks. Excuse me, sir? It was a white man. He leaned forward farther and peered around the girl, his mouth still smiling, his eyes bright. It's a joke, Sam. Between the two men, the girl smiled, turning first to beam at Lucius and then at the man she had called Sam. A joke? You know how some people think black people all look the same? The gentleman's saying all white people look the same. She kept smiling at both men back and forth. <coughs> Lucius didn't answer, just kept staring straight ahead, his hand on his drink. Is that it? It was a white man, Sam. He was twisted sideways in his seat, his whole arm on the bar, head in hand, looking around the girl at Lucius. Is that it, sir? Wasn't no joke. Lucius didn't turn his head, just stared straight ahead. Up at the front of the bar, Fatima folded his newspaper with, with exaggerated, noisy motions, then laid it aside, staying where he was, but pointedly staring down the length of the bar at the trio on the other end. You think we lo all look alike? Don't matter what I think. That's right, partner. It don't matter what you think. Sam. It was a girl. Her voice was small, scared. Sam, let's go. Sam stood up, looking hard at Lucius, never taking his eyes off him, even though his words were the woman. Shut up. Go outside and get us a cab. He spoke to Lucius. You know what I am? Lucius turned his head for the first time in a man's direction, but didn't make eye contact and then turned back. I know what you are. And what would that be? You're a cop. Yeah, the man laughed. Yeah, I'm a cop. I kind of figured you'd know. You'd know. You've been in a joint, ain't you? Lucius stood up, picked up his drink, and walked around the couple, up toward the front of the bar, and sat down on the farthest stool. He pushed his glass at Pathema. Pathema picked it up and turned around for a bottle. Lucius reached down and took out a small wad, took out a small wad of bills from his sock, extracted one, and put the rest back in the sock. Pathema took the dollar bill between his forefinger and thumb and took it down to the register and put it in a special drawer. He asked the white couple if they wanted a refill. When the white man got his drink, he picked it up and walked up to where Lucius was sitting. The girl put her hand on his arm as he got up, but he ignored her. Her face was pale. She remained on her stool. My name's Sam, said the man when he got to Lucius. He put his hand out, and Lucius just stared ahead at the royal bottles behind the bar. Sam stood there, hand outstretched, and turned his palm up, looked at it, wiped on his wiped it on his trousers as, as if it had somehow gotten dirty. He laughed and pulled out the stool next to Lucius and sat down, swinging around so that he faced the blank man. You're not real sociable, are you? Leave me be. No, sir, not too sociable, the white man went on, as if he hadn't heard him. Now, why would that be? Let's see, you're a big one. Look like you could handle yourself. I'm a white guy in a black bar, kind of getting up in your face if you want to look at it that way. But you, well, you don't do nothing about it. Ain't that just about the strangest thing you ever heard of? Now, it could be you just naturally respect the law, but somehow I don't think that's it. You know what I think? 
Lucius took a swing of his wine, swig of his wine, looked dead ahead, jaw muscles working, but not a word to say to even acknowledge the man was there. I think there's paper on you. There's a warrant on you, ain't there? You done something real bad, ain't you, old son? Now I ain't from around here. I'm Tennessee law, but I bet I could find me a police around here. Like to talk to y'all. Again, Lucius lifted his glass, took a swallow, stared at the back bar in front of him. The other man slugged down the rest of his drink and slammed the empty glass down in the bar hard and got up, swinging his leg wide to clear the stool like a cowboy getting off his horse. Not an ear in a place heard their exchange, but not an eye had missed it. The white man walked halfway back to where his girl was, still sitting in Tolpathema in a loud voice. How about another one, pal, and give my friend here one, too. He winked at the bartender and inclined his head toward where Lucius was sitting. Lucius got up, drank in hand, and walked around the man and then the girl and back to the rear of the bar where the pool table was. He sat down on the bench where the kibitzers were, the kibitzers sat. Even though he sat apart from the couple of men who were already there, they scooched down even further away from him. The man called Sam came walking back with a drink in each hand and sat one of the glasses of wine highball down in the ledge just beyond, just behind Lucia's head. Here's your drink, boy, he said, and some, somewhere there was a sharp intake of breath, and for the first time Lucius looked directly at the man. Before anything could happen, a huge shadow slid between the two men. Leave it alone, Fathima said to the white man standing between the two, his back to Lucius. A look, not a fear exactly, more of surprise passed over the white man's face and then something else and then it was gone. And he was too, with a loud, strained snort, back to the bar where his woman sat on her stool, twisting a strand of her hair nervously between her fingers. The Thema waited until the man had reached his companion and then he turned and eyed Lucius, who held his gaze for the briefest of seconds, then looked down and away. Some things is worse than a joint, Fathima said. Yes, replied Lucius in a thick voice. Maybe. That was a piece of trash. Lucius kept his head down and went over and sat down on the kibitzer's bench. Fathima watched him for a minute. Then he shook his head slowly from side to side and went back up to the front. The white man started to say something to him as he went by, and they must have thought better of it and turned to the woman instead uttering a laugh that was cut short when Fathima's head whipped around. About ten minutes later, the white couple left, laughing, the man's arm around the woman's waist. Soon after that, Fathima came walking, white towel in hand, making his rounds. Stopping in front of Lucius, he looked down at the man and said, You want another drink? Lucius just stared ahead at the pool table, at the balls carooming. The ball stopped moving, but the man who had the next shot waited. Everyone was watching Lucius. No, thank you, he said. He didn't look at Fatima or at anyone else, just kept staring at the pool table. Well, man, you got to buy a drink here you got to get. Don't want no loafers here. Lucius seemed to consider that for a moment. Then he stood up and put his empty glass on one of the little wall holders behind him. He turned and faced Fatima. Surprisingly, he seemed to be about the same size as the bartender, though more muscular and not as fat. He drew his shoulders back, expanding his chest until it seemed the buttons would pop clear off and the sleeves seemed to tighten around his upper arms. 
His eyes were wide, and there, were red, there was red in the lights, and for a moment, the two men stood there, and a collective breath was held as everyone in the bar sensed the tension, and then it was over, and Lucius seemed to sink into the floor a little, and he said in a small, still voice, Well then, I guess I'll go. I know what you did, Athema said as Lucius moved away, and a word seemed to strike the man in the back, physically, almost like a blow. He slowed a step, hesitated, and then commenced to walk once again. Lucius! The voices spat out with force and fury, hurled like a fastball, the sound filling every speck of space in the room. This time Lucius stopped and turned. I know what you did, Lucius. It still ain't right. You got a powerful stink about you, man. That man shit on you, Lucius. Lucius stared at Pathema for a, for a space that seemed long and then said, I'm not you, nigger. And he was saying it to only one person. And the way he said the word nigger was not hard or vicious or mean-spirited, but in a voice that had everything of what could be called a human quality. He turned and walked toward the front. Halfway there, he turned around as if he were to say something else. Bethema looked up and said, yeah? Lucius started to speak and then must have changed his mind. He put his head down and turned and walked out the front door. There was a split second when the only sound in the Mockingbird was that of Burt Parks on the TV. There she is, Missa. And then the hubbub started up again, balls clicking on the pool table, glasses clinking, the buzz of voices, laughter. Bethema walked up to the front and turned the TV off, twisted the knob so savagely it broke in his hand. He looked at the piece of plastic for a moment and then hurled it from him with the suddenness of a pitcher picking off a base runner who's leaned a little too much towards second at just the wrong time. Thank you. All right. Our next reader, a reader is Scott Phillips. Thank you, thank you. Thank you very much. Was born in Kansas, moved, moved to France, and then L.A., and then ended up in St. Louis. He is a grizzled old fuck who writes dirty books. And I think he's going to read uh, something dirty from one of his books uh, tonight for us. So give him a hand. I'm going to try and find, uh, I always have trouble with these things, you know, I, I, I think, uh, is this about right? Is no, that good? Louder! Louder! Okay. Go. All right. Here we go. How's that? Oh. Oh, me. Oh, shit. Stroke it! Okay. That broke it. That broke it for real this time. Motherfucker. All right, this, uh, this, this comes from a uh, time about 25 years ago. I had a friend who was an actor who was the star of a, uh, a soap opera called Santa Barbara uh, that nobody really watched in America, but it was a huge, huge fucking hit. 
in prime time in, in Europe. And uh, so I was living in France, and this guy says, I'm going to come over with some of my castmates because they were on hiatus. He said, we're going to learn French, and we're going we're gonna to make movies. Anyway, to, to make a long, long story short, this guy basically just uh, spent the summer and part of the fall getting laid. Uh, and, you know, we tried to make a movie. We tried to get a movie made about uh, two guys who find the arms of the Venus de Milo, uh, which is an idea that Ed Wood Jr. also had back in the 60s. Uh, so anyway, uh, my French publisher, Damn it! Uh, my French publisher asked me about about three years ago would I write him a novel that could be sh that could that that could possibly be a TV movie that could be shot in France? And I said, yeah, sure. So I thought I came upon the idea of fictionalizing this story and turning my actor buddy into a psycho killer and. Uh, and anyway, long story short, the movie never got made. The TV movie didn't didn't happen. But uh, so one of the things that happened was we had a uh, a genuine uh, arms merchant that we wanted that we were trying to get to uh, fund the picture. And his daughter. The reason we were trying to do this is his daughter. We knew wanted to be an actress. And we thought that we could get her, uh, you know, we thought we could get her dad to pony up. And at a certain point, I said to my friend, uh, I'm not really sure how I, this is a really, really genuinely bad guy. His name was Adnan Khashoggi. Some of you might have heard of him back, back in the day, some of you older folks. Uh, but he was really a genuine badass. Uh, if any of you are Queen fans, Queen did a song called Khashoggi's Yacht because they had been invited upon it. Anyway, uh, movie never got made, but I, I thought it would be interesting if there was a character in this book who was an arms merchant who was going to fund the movie whose wife wanted to be an actress. Damn it. God damn it. Um, all right, so this guy uh, is, is uh, the narrator. The, the, the writer in this is, is based loosely on me. He's this poor guy who can't get laid to save his life, and his, his best friend is this uh, TV star who is fucking seven or eight women at the same time. Uh, and one of the women that, the, in addition to the wife of the uh, arms merchant, this guy is also fucking a, an American porn star and getting in the press for it. So he's just dropped off the porn star and is heading back to the apartment that the arms merchant and the arms merchant's wife have lent him. I dropped the porn star off in a taxi at the Boulevard of Sebastopol and started walking toward the left bank. The occasional passerby stopped and called out to me, to which I re returned a snappy salute, and at Chatelet, one old lady stopped to lecture me about my character's love life. That pretty nurse, why do you treat her that way? She should be making you babies. There's more to life than making love to strange women, doctor. He plays a doctor. I thanked her, promised to consider it, and was on my way. I decided to walk along the river and descended to the Kejuru 
As I walked across the podium carousel, I heard someone snicker from the shadows, followed by some more snickering from several individuals, followed by a suggestion that some cocksucker should be killed or in shit. <laughs> Sensing that I was the cocksucker in question, I reached into my vest pocket and removed the tactical baton. Uh, at this point, I have to say that there, there used to be in France a lot of roving bands of junkies and they were not aggressive except for the women. And the, the woman would always be trying to get the guys into a fight. And they were junkies, so it never really happened, but there would always be this woman saying, kick his ass! Anyway, so that's what happens here. Uh, excuse me, sir, you dropped something, came a voice from behind me. I spun and faced a guy in his 20s carrying a blade with no idea how to use it offensively. From behind the bridge, from beneath the bridge came four of his comrades, at least one of them a girl, judging from the giggling. Alright, let's see the watch and the watch, and that way you don't get fucked up. This is all happening in French. Alright. Goodness gracious me, I said, the joyful adrenaline flowing through my veins and counteracting the pacifying effect of the oysters and wine in my belly. You want my phone too? Fuck yeah, I want your fucking phone, bitch. Hand it the fuck over. I flicked the tactical baton under and over and hit his hand and the knife went flying into the river with a satisfying plosive splash. Before he fully processed its loss, I cracked him across his teeth and kicked him hard in the balls and he went down in to the paving stones howling. His friends hesitated and then the girl said, are you gonna let that faggot kick Renee's ass like that, bitch? <laughs> at that, one of them charged me, a large fellow with a stupid look on his face, at least as, a, as far as I could tell in the dim light of the cave. He was open for one of the real textbook moves of judo. So I de-telescoped the baton and just before impact, replaced it suavely in my jacket pocket. I bent down, stepped slightly aside, and altered his trajectory over my shoulder and down the stones of the embankment and down into the Seine to join his friend's blade. That's better, isn't it? You can hear that now. All right, parentheses. I used to hear that if you fell into the Seine, they automatically hospitalized you and gave you a serious heavy-duty course of antibiotics. Is that still true, or was it ever? Or is that just one of those things they tell young American exchange students to discourage them from jumping into the river? Close parentheses. Au suivant, I yelled, and two of them turned and ran. The girl stumbled forward. Fucking faggots, afraid of some stupid fucking bitch. Come on, cunt, let's get it on. <laughs> she too had a knife, and like her friend, she was holding it all wrong. The baton didn't seem sporting fighting a girl, so I waited until she was close and started to lunge, and then I planted my right fist in her belly as hard as I'd ever hit anyone, male or female. Something about it felt wrong, though. And when she hit the ground, I saw that she was pregnant. And I have to say at this point that I am, I am really, this is the first time I have ever been the second person at a reading to do the punching the pregnant woman in the stomach thing. So. Yeah. I know, I'm just, I, I, it's, I, I, it's the anxiety of influence. All right, um, 
I took the knife which had fallen from her hand and threw it into the river, and then I climbed the steps to the bridge and crossed it. I walked some distance trying to find a payphone. There's the curse of the cell phone. Never a payphone around when you want to make a, a call that can't be traced to you later. And finally found one by going the wrong direction, just off the Place Saint-Michel. I called 911 and informed them that a young woman was lying unconscious beneath the Pont du Carousel and that she seemed to be pregnant. And then I hung up. On the way home, I heard the ambulance's klaxon honking and wished the girl well despite it all. Mostly I hoped I'd terminated that pregnancy, though inadvertently, if only for the sake of the kid himself. I grew up with a mother like that, and buddy, that's not any way you want to grow up. My mom was married for the first time at 14, illegally, and divorced at 17. That character, by the way, is based on my grandmother. Uh, she really was. Mar married twice before she hit 18. Uh, she had got her GED and started college, an experiment that produced nothing but a second marriage to the instructor of her freshman math course which itself was the result of a pregnancy that began in the classic American manner in the back seat of a T-bird. My father, which, with whom I maintained sporadic contact until his death, was overjoyed at the prospect of a child, but my mother didn't take to it. She found that what she liked was drinking and other fellows, and after the unpleasant surprise of my arrival, birth control. I do have one sister, 15 years my junior, from my mother's third marriage and brief, brief flirtation with sobriety and Christianity. My stepfather, a good and honest, if somewhat stern Kentuckian, suffered through five years of her antics before divorcing her. I'm still in somewhat spotty contact with him and my sister, although whether my mother is among the living is a matter of some indifference to me. That was a chapter I really loved reading in my hometown with my mother in the audience. <laughs> She was not looking happy. Even though I said, it's your mom. It's not, I'm not, I'm not writing about you. It's about. Anyway, my discovery after my discharge that acting was something I was good at and that women liked was probably what saved me from a life of brawling and petty criminality. All that anger gets wrapped up in the preparation and chucked out in the performance. An art therapist once told me that all art is art therapy. I was in bed telling all this to Esme the next night. Esme is the arms dealer's wife. I'd spent the day wandering about the girl under the bridge and was rewarded in the late afternoon with an account on the Liberation website about a group of young people who claimed they'd been beaten up by Dr. Ta Crandall Taylor from the television. Ha! Two of them had been hospitalized. There was no mention of a third which either meant that the first boy hadn't been hurt very badly or that the one I'd tossed into the sand had floated away. There was no mention of the girls being pregnant, which presumably meant she hadn't miscarried. My feelings were mixed there, but I'm not the Pope, and it wasn't my business to go around deciding who could or couldn't reproduce. <laughs> Esme had shown up around seven, and we spent some time looking at the artwork in the apartment before surrendering to the bedroom's pull. When we were done, I asked where the money had come from to buy all that artwork. Uh, some of it's mine from modeling. You earned enough modeling to buy a Picasso? Oh, please, it's a little drawing. They're not giving those little drawings away. What does Claude do for a living, anyway? See, he knows, but she doesn't know he knows. This was the moment of truth. I didn't care if it was true or not. I just wanted to see if she'd tell me. He's in the import-export trade. 
Where is he now? I was thinking North Korea, Iran, maybe Pakistan or Israel. I don't know. He doesn't tell me where he goes. Anyway, he won't be back for a week. Would he kill me if he knew? She snorted. Don't be melodramatic. But he doesn't like me, does he? No. Is he going to put up the money for the movie? She extended a long leg into the air above the bed and studied it. It's perfection. I hate to say this, but I don't think he is. You say you've got money for modeling. Enough to buy a little Picasso drawing. All right, he paid for that, but I picked it out. Isn't it your money too? Can't you insist? It's not that kind of marriage. I'm still working on him. Don't despair. Oh, I'm not desperate yet. Tomorrow I'm going to Longchamp and bet all I've got left in the world on a horse in the fifth. She took in a deep breath and sat up with a melodramatic and charming gesture of placing her hand flat on her sternum, taking my little joke quite seriously. You mustn't. Why not? Tomorrow is Friday the 13th. I laughed and thought to myself, maybe I would go to the track tomorrow for real, as May left before midnight with a stern warning not to do anything the next day that required any sort of luck, and I went to sleep earlier than usual, convinced my own luck was about magically good at that moment, and that no harm would come to me, little suspecting that downstairs was a man with a gun and a key to the apartment and a seeming desire to see me. I'd like to remind everybody that a portion of tonight's proceedings will be going to help pay for uh, David James Keaton's uh, psychiatric care. All right, thank, <laughs> thanks, Scott. Uh, I want to thank everybody for coming. Uh, I want to thank all the authors who, who came. Uh, some of them traveled, actually, uh, a good distance to be here. Um, I want to thank Fountain Square Brewery for providing the, the location and the beer. Yes, yay beer. I want to thank David James Keaton for make it, making it hard for me to sleep tonight. Uh, there are books for sale up here, uh, including... Uh, I think all the authors that read tonight have something up here. Uh, Full Dark City Press, which I'm part of, has one book, I'll, uh, I'll Do Respect, which is pretty kick-ass. It's about uh, criminals and criminals only. So uh, if you like that kind of stuff, it's a good book. Uh, if you don't see something you want, uh, all the authors will be available to sign um, if you want to buy something of theirs. Um, if you can't buy tonight, most of, I think all this stuff is available online. So uh, help support us we appreciate it so anyway thanks a lot uh we had a great time and uh see you next time and if all the uh readers could uh, stand by tonight for a photo i'd really appreciate it all right, you just heard Les Edgerton and Scott Phillips reading, but you also heard C.G. Edwards calling us out about denying his story for our anthology. How crazy was that? Yeah, it is what it is. That's the publishing life. I'm kidding. It was kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> it's a little bit weird, but I'm the one that yelled out, "You're welcome." <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, but now, um, whenever we look at a list of live readings where we may run into somebody who didn't make it into the anthology, we're just going to cross that one off the list. How's that sound? <laughs> yeah, and he was the MC, but he asked us to come, so I think you know what it was like. You know, we're we're, we're good. We're good. Yeah, we are. Um, yeah. So yeah, Les Edgerton, um, a, a fantastic story from him, and like I said, uh, a. a just a pleasure to to be able to meet him um dude that guy's 70 i didn't yeah i didn't even realize like <laughs> you, you you see an online presence of someone you don't even really think about their age and then when you meet we met him and we're like oh you know and then he's like 70 and dude he was more energetic than both of us i know combined yeah no yeah, kidding he's a very lively but, dude mm-hmm. um i did i did he did he was very graciously gave us some books and i have an advanced review copy of The Bitch, which comes out early next year, and I get the feeling you might be hearing more about that book on this show. <laughs> right on. And then there's Scott Phillips rounding out the evening, I think rightfully so. I didn't, so we'd heard him read before, but I didn't remember him having such a, a theatrical presence. Do you think it was different now, or did I just not remember it? Um,. I don't know. I know. I think. I think you're right because we only saw him the one time read actually reading in Corydon, and I don't think it was quite as theatrical. Because he was doing like old women's voices, and he was speaking. He was doing all the female voices and almost like a their own different affectations. He could do like audiobooks the way he was doing this. He certainly could. Yeah. So, oh, maybe we're onto something there. At any rate, great to see Scott Phillips read. Um, absolute pleasure. Um, after the reading, after the event, we got to have dinner with Jed and Scott, which was uh, my second favorite right after meeting Les, Les Edgerton moment of the of the weekend. Uh, it was really cool to be able to just kind of sit back with those guys and uh, and shoot the shit over dinner and uh, really great time. Yeah, it's cool. Like when you when you read someone and you admire their art, um, to have an opportunity to just kind of sit down and be a person with them afterwards. It's really, it's kind of exciting because like, you know, it's this person who you admire, but then like you can just kind of chill and they're just like everybody else and you're having a good time. So it's, it's just, it's, I feel grateful that we get these opportunities for sure. Well, yeah. And we've said it often on the show. One of the coolest parts of doing this podcast is the interaction that we've been able to have with people. Um, you know, we would have read books anyway if we weren't doing this podcast. Um, yeah, dinner with uh, with uh, Jed and Scott, probably not nearly as likely. That's right. Now, can I ask you a question, Livius? Yes. Did Scott Phillips say anything cool about a tattoo you have? Um, no, as a matter of fact, he actually completely ignored all of my tattoos. <laughs> In favor of, he couldn't stop talking about the one on your arm. That's right. Which... <laughs> He was very complimentary of, but also acknowledged the fact that from a distance, it probably looks like I'm the first zombie in an outbreak. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My words, not his, but still. Yeah, no. No, but we should add quotes because he did say some interesting things about your tattoo. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. uh, That uh, that brings us to the end. I mean, really, CJ Edwards, thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of this. It was uh, was really a great time. And uh, look forward to more uh, Indianapolis noir at the bars. That's right. And actually for allowing us to be a part of the author photo as well. We actually were in in CJ's eyes an integral part of the entire evening, so I thought that was yeah. very nice. Very thoughtful. I'm pretty sure when we see that photo it's gonna look like we're just photobombing Scott Phillips the whole time. Because <laughs> he we was are completely hamming on. it up. He was completely hamming it up like right in front of us as we look, you know, nervous and scared behind him. So 
looking forward to seeing that photo though that's right so what do we have coming up on the horizon livius oh s by jj abrams and doug dorst maybe (laughs) i am so i've never been happier to have two weeks to read a book than this even one q84 i wasn't as excited that i had extra time to try to get through something yeah Um, not saying it's bad saying it's difficult it is a challenge. I've uh, I spent uh, several hours reading it today, and I'm making significant progress. But it's 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 tough. So looking forward to and actually, this is a little bit of a sneak preview. Livius and I are reading it in different ways mm-hmm. to kind of give two separate perspectives about how to properly receive the information. So hopefully, in addition to just telling you whether it's a piece of shit or not, we'll be able to tell you the right way to read it to have the best experience. One would help. I was going to say, yeah, this is the two different ways we're reading it. You're trudging through it, and I'm going to pretend I read it. <laughs> well, then one of, they're both valid, I think. Yeah. We'll <laughs> so you're going to say so a part, you're like, I love that part. That's my favorite part. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Um, so we will be back in uh, just a few days' time at this point with, uh, with our review of S. Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rebels, and keep reading. You gotta fight!